be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. And the people are going to have to attack the pig. The people are going to have to stand up against the pig. That's what the pastors are doing. That's what the pastors are doing all over the world. Welcome to Revolutionary Tracks, another episode. Uh, that was actually the anthem from the M19 uh, movement, which is the April 19 movement. Uh, we're very excited, Marcus and I, uh, to introduce today's guest. But before that, uh, Marcus, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I think fully recovered from uh, the launch. Um, and, and actually, yeah, very, very excited to, to speak with our guest. Um, about some of the things that are going on, uh, kind of b- south of the border, um, in the very, very vast world that, uh, has had a lot of influence from the United States, but not a lot of focus from the American people. I'm, I'm really excited to introduce the guest because, uh, uh, our guest today is a multi-instrumentalist and a jazz and classical composer who occasionally engages in a little bit of journalism. Uh, Ben Norton, welcome to the show. Uh, Can you hear us and are you able to speak? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure being here. I wouldn't, (laughs) I would have reversed the order a little bit. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) a lot of people don't know I'm also a musician. And uh, you did mention that I, I am a composer and I do write jazz and some classical, but contemporary avant-garde classical. But I also... More than even jazz and classical, I also the music I play the most is metal. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can, I totally forgot about that. You have a project called Peculate, which uh, uh, like somehow you keep up with uh, posting stuff on there, like as regularly as you do uh, videos on Multipolarista, which is pretty uh, phenomenal. I don't know where you get the time to do that, but uh, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. It's always fun not only to talk about politics with comrades, but also music because I don't get many opportunities to talk about music. Well, I'm really glad because uh, you're going to get an opportunity to talk about both, hopefully. Uh, but before that, like, uh, uh, I think the topic of the day is multipolarity. So, uh, and your project obviously is uh, titled Multipolarista, which I would imagine just putting two and two together kind of seems something like multipolarity. So, can you uh, start us off a little bit by t- telling us about the project and uh, what your what your coverage is and uh, what you basically mean by multipolarista or multipolarity. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. I'll start by saying that I named I named it multipolarista for a few reasons. One, because I wanted something that would work both in English and Spanish. I live in Latin America and I do a lot of reporting also in Spanish, mostly print reporting. I do some videos and stuff in Spanish, but the audience is largely English speaking for videos because the way the algorithm works on YouTube, it's really hard to be able to do both. But so the name works in both. But then also I was thinking about I, I launched the new media outlet the beginning of this year. So it's pretty new. And I was trying to think about topics or I was trying to think about a, a framing that would that would bring together kind of all these topics that I report on. And it a lot of it is really about this historic transition that we're seeing in the world with the decline of the U.S.-led unipolar hegemonic system that was constructed really after World War II, but then that really seized control of the entire global political and economic system around 1991 with the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. The 90s was, of course, a decade of horrible counter-revolution around much of the world. And it's not a coincidence that 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 counter-revolution happened at the time of the peak of U.S. unipolarity. This is a moment in which the U.S. empire dominates the entire planet and forces neoliberal policies on the world. We have to understand neoliberalism is really the phase of capitalism dominated by U.S. imperialism in which there are no alternatives. And that's why neoliberalism is the phase of capitalism without even pretending that the state cares about working people, cutting all social programs, privatizing everything. During the first Cold War, there was this kind of bipolar system because the U.S. empire was trying to prevent the creation of a multipolar system, and it forced the Iron Curtain on the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, imposing sanctions and a blockade on countries like Cuba, the DPRK. Of course, that policy continues today, but it shows that that in the first Cold War, there was an alternative to the U.S.-led capitalist system. And in 1991, that, that alternative was overthrown. And with a few noble exceptions of countries that were able to withstand the very difficult years, especially, you know, Cuba being the shining example. In Cuba in the 1990s was a very difficult moment that's known as the special period. And in other countries, there was a very similar story. So the situation today is very different. There has been a massive uprising around the world against neoliberalism. Latin America has helped lead the way, being the vanguard of the international left, 
thanks to not only Cuba always standing strong, but uh, Venezuela, uh, the Sandinistas came back in Nicaragua, uh, Bolivia, Ecuador also had Correa, um, Brazil had Lula. So there was this massive rebellion. And then finally, the rise of China, the most important factor, has really led to the creation of a fundamentally different international political and economic system. China today has the largest economy in the world, and that economy is run by a communist party. The government is a socialist government, and it's it has a mixed economy. It has complicated policies, but it is decidedly a socialist model in which land is run is land is owned by the state in which the commanding heights of the economy are owned by the state, including the telecommunication sector, including transportation, in which the banking sector is, is owned by the state and run by the state. All of the biggest banks are owned by the state. So the reality is that the U.S. unipolar system that we saw after 1991 in the past decade has been declining in power and influence, and there have been multiple challenges to it. And a lot of people around the world can see that it's very quickly declining. And of course, the war in Ukraine has only further accelerated that decline. So when, when I when, when it's called multipolarista, it's also about it's a recognition of the fact that multipolarity is a fact. And the US empire and the European Union is trying to prevent the creation, the emergence of a multipolar order in order to continue imposing this neoliberal order that has been dominated by U.S.-led imperialism. But that reality is, the reality is that that system is, is crumbling and can't continue to impose itself on the world except with war. And that's why they continue to wage war everywhere they can. Um, and I mean, there's a whole lot, uh, that we can, I think, I feel like we're going to like be unraveling that even like that introduction that you just gave up why you named, uh, your, uh, your, your company, what you did. Um, but I think one of the things I guess that I'd like to start on is just that the difference between the nineties and now, um, and I wonder if you know, like that's something that we can, you can attribute to the fact of, uh, China's rise and then kind of replacing the vacuum that the USSR had, had left. Um, because, you know, I think, yeah, more recently you're seeing that there's a, uh, resistance, um, to the same type of tricks, you know, cause you are seeing attempted coups now that are not being successful or they're being, you know, overthrown within, within the, you know, a, a short amount of time. Um, and then actually a lot, you know, these countries are, 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 are more now steadfastly being run by leftist, uh, governments. Uh, so yeah, is that, is that due to China being, being able to be kind of like a bulwark that, uh, they could rely upon where the USSR had left? And, um, yeah, I guess we'll start there before we go forward. Well, it's, it's a little more complicated. First of all, I'll say that it's true that in Latin America, some of the US backed coups have been overturned, which is incredible to see. Most well known is the 2019 coup in Bolivia. It, against Evo Morales, the elected socialist president, the first ever indigenous leader of a majority indigenous country. And in record time, in less than a year, the coup regime was overthrown and the movement towards socialism party of Morales and the current president, Luis Arce, came back to power. So that, that's a that's a very great example. In, in Honduras, it took much longer. In Honduras, there was a U.S.-backed right-wing coup in 2009, in June, 
And it was not until November of last year that the left was finally able to win elections because they had been stolen from the left before that. And at the beginning of this year that the left finally came back to power. So that was about 13 years of a coup regime. And we've also seen that there is basically a kind of coup in Ecuador. And right now, as we're speaking, there are massive protests going on in Ecuador against the neoliberal millionaire banker president Guillermo Lasso. He might not, he might not survive politically. So that's another kind of reversal of a soft U.S. backed coup. And then finally, there's the, the two U.S. coups in Brazil. And they haven't really been overturned yet because in 2016, there was the U.S. backed impeachment, this dirty operation backed by the Justice Department to, to impeach Dilma Rousseff, the Workers' Party president. And then in 2018, another Justice Department backed operation to imprison Lula da Silva to prevent him from being presidential candidate. So we'll see what happens this October. There's discussions that that Jair Bolsonaro, the fascist leader of Brazil, is going to try to launch another coup, a more explicit military coup to prevent Lula from from becoming president. We'll see. I mean, so those those model those uh, examples of coups being reversed, of course, are they, they do, you know, inspire confidence. But at the same time. We just saw in Pakistan, one of the world's largest countries, there was another coup in in which once again the U.S. had its fingerprints all over it against Imran Khan, who is not necessarily a leftist, but is a a, a popular nationalist who had an independent foreign policy and was trying to pursue a kind of welfare state model that he refers to an Islamic welfare state. And he was overthrown in a blatant coup backed by the U.S. And... You know, it's only been a few months, but Pakistan hasn't been able to reverse that coup. So I don't think we should be too optimistic because the reality is that there are coups that have been overturned, but there still are a lot of coups happening. There was also a coup in Mali. There was a coup in Guinea. So the situation is a little more complicated. And as for the role of China, certainly China plays a positive role, especially in offering economic opportunities to countries that want to pursue a development model that's not just pure neoliberalism. So China offers a lot of projects for infrastructure through the Belt and Road. It also offers projects and loans that don't have the political conditionalities that the IMF and the World Bank have, which always mandate structural adjustment, the imposition of neoliberal reforms, privatization, cutting social, social programs. But at the same time, China doesn't have the same kind of activist foreign policy that the Soviet Union had. China's foreign policy is still very hands-off, very non-interventionist. China is willing to support countries that have revolutionary governments, like in Venezuela. China has China's support has been very important. China and Nicaragua, where I am now, the Sandinista government, they become close allies. So China certainly does that. But to be fair, I mean, China also has good relations with apartheid Israel and Saudi Arabia. So China's foreign policy is not the same as the Soviet Union. China says, we don't meddle. We don't interfere, unlike the U.S. We will give loans and build infrastructure in any country, and we won't, we won't have any strings attached. So the difference now is that China, by virtue of being the largest economy in the world, according to purchasing power parity, so if you actually measure China's economy based on the actual Chinese economy and not U.S. dollars, China's economy is significantly larger than the U.S. economy, and it continues to grow. That's the significant difference, is that 
countries now, they no longer only have the option of the Washington consensus. And we, people need, really need to understand how neoliberalism is deeply tied to U.S. imperialism. It's not a coincidence that neoliberalism emerges in the 1980s at the moment of systemic crisis in the Soviet Union and the eventual overthrow of the Soviet Union. Because before that, there was this kind of agreement that capitalists were forced to make with labor, allowing some element of a social safety net, some element of labor rights, because they feared socialist revolution. But by the 1980s, the capitalist class was no longer afraid of socialist revolution. And we saw around the world, social democratic and even socialist parties moved purely toward a neoliberal program because they lost the support of another economic bloc, another pole, if you will, that provided them with an alternative. So we saw in South Africa, the, the revolutionary movement to defeat apartheid did succeed politically, but economically, we saw Nelson Mandela, who was a communist, was forced to implement a neoliberal program because they took power in 1991 and they had no other economic support. The only economic possibilities were taking the IMF loans and World Bank loans and implementing the Washington Consensus. And we saw this around the world. The, the INC, the Indian National Congress Party, which, according to its foundational documents, when India got independence from British colonialism in 1947 and was led by ostensible socialists. I mean, it was supposed to be uh, socialism was embedded into the Indian constitution. We saw Nehru called himself a socialist. He was a founder of the online movement. By the 1990s, the INC became a completely neoliberal party. So the reality is that we have to understand neoliberalism as the phase of U.S. unipolarity. And now the difference is that there are other possibilities for countries to develop different economic models, not only socialist models like we see in Latin America and Vietnam and, and, and China and Laos, but we also see interesting kind of hybrid models. Iran has a very interesting economic model that's based on state-led development of the economy and ownership of significant parts of the economy, but it's not a socialist model. Uh, we also see that Russia has like a kind of hybrid model where it's certainly a capitalist economy, but the largest companies are state-owned and those companies are largely based on the export of raw materials and commodities. So the reality is that in the 1990s, countries weren't able to, to have state control of significant resources and state-led companies and, and a state-led economy because it was a moment of U.S. unipolar hegemony, and you either went with the Washington Consensus or the U.S. government invaded your country and overthrew your government, as we saw in the wars, the two wars in Iraq, the war in Libya, the war in Syria, and of course the war that destroyed Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Uh, an e uh, equally significant uh, component to this uh the, the U.S. unipolarity, which I think uh, will bring us back to the conversation about Colombia, as you point out in uh, multiple videos that you had released uh, around the election, around the time of the election of Gustavo Pietro, uh, Petro, um, is that uh, basically you, you speak about how, uh, and this speaks to even the, the, the 
lack of or like this failure of coups, uh, maybe uh, where uh, you point out that like coups are successful or like coups fail, depending upon whether the leader actually has control over the military or not. Um, and uh, in this case, like uh, you also point out, like there are uh, aspects such as like the the drug wars and the drug trade uh, and like uh, the corresponding like the relationship with the death squads and stuff like that, especially in uh, South and Central America, where uh, the United States has like uh, is supposed to have uh, relationships enough that uh, that the military leadership could actually, you know, have a fallout with the state and, and, and kind of like... Um, wield the stick with which uh, they can force a leader uh, to either like you know uh, risk getting assassinated or overthrown uh, or like follow a neoliberal policy so uh, how much um, has this been a word and like especially uh, it, since you point that out in in your videos like it seems like uh, when a leader uh, especially in in a country like cuba or uh, venezuela when a leader actually has that kind of control over their military so much so that the military will never overthrow them then those leaders are con- called authoritarian and dictators and stuff like that so um how do you see the landscape changing in terms of like how much uh, the elected head of state, especially uh, a leftist or like someone with uh, and plans to nationalize the economy even a slight bit uh, in terms of uh, how much control they have over the military and or, or how much the U.S. is able to influence um, the overthrow of the military in their respective countries? Yeah, well, this is a key contradiction. It's extremely important to highlight. You talked about the case of Colombia this is going to be the real question that everyone has in their mind as as Petro, Gustavo Petro, the president-elect, takes power on August 7th. Is there going to be a coup? Is the military going to follow his orders? One good sign is that actually today, today is June 19th, uh, June 29th, excuse me, we saw that the commander-in-chief of the Colombian Armed Forces, uh, Eduardo Zapatero, he announced that he's resigning in protest because he refuses to attend the the swearing-in ceremony, the inauguration of Gustavo Petro, because Petro was, is a former guerrilla. He actually fought in the M19 movement that you began this episode uh, with the anthem of, right? So that that is a good sign, but there's the reality is that there is a lot of U.S. influence in the Colombian military. The Colombian military has been trained and armed by the U.S. military. They do regular exercises together. In fact, this this year, earlier this year, the U.S. and the Colombian military did, did exercises with a nuclear submarine in the Caribbean Sea right off the coast of Venezuela. So that was clearly a threat against Venezuela, but it was also kind of a threat against the left inside Colombia. And we'll see how it goes. I mentioned the coup in, in Bolivia in 2019. One of the main reasons for that coup is because Evo Morales and the Movement Towards Socialism Party didn't have a support base in the military because the movement towards socialism party is based in the social movements and the farmers movements and the labor unions in Bolivia. And the military has been a kind of bastion for elite power, especially of people of European descent who are very racist toward the indigenous majority. So this question of having influence in the military is key. It's, that's one of the main reasons why in Venezuela, the Chavista government was not overthrown despite constant U.S. coup attempts of course, Hugo Chavez, he, he was briefly overthrown in April 2002 in a U.S.-backed coup that was briefly successful. But because Hugo Chavez was from the military, he had a military background, he was very popular among the military, especially the rank-and-file forces, 
And after the briefly successful coup, the military rebelled against the coup leaders and brought him back to power. He was democratically elected, of course. So that was an example of where if a movement, a left-wing movement does have support within the military, especially within the rank and file, they can overcome these coups. And in the case of Nicaragua here, the military also was completely remade by the Sandinistas. And it's a nationalist military. It's a patriotic military. It's an anti-imperialist military. So the possibility of a coup here is very unlikely. They tried in 2018 and they failed. It was a very violent coup attempt, but the military leadership was very loyal to the, to the government, to the, to the country. Maybe not necessarily loyal to Sandinismo as a socialist political project, but loyal to their country. And they're not going to sell out their country to U.S. imperialism, given the history of Agosto Sandino and the history of U.S. military occupation and all of that. So this is a key question that, that people need to think about in a lot of these struggles in Latin America and also around the world when a left-wing movement takes power. If they don't control certain elements of the state, they can be overthrown. And we, we, we can't be naive and think about politics like liberals. Liberals think, oh, you know, you win an election and then you just take power and you're... No, that's not how politics works. The reality is that winning the election is a small part of governing, but you can win an election and then the entire apparatus of the state can be against you, whether it's the police forces, the military forces, the oligarchy, the large companies, the concentrated, you know, capital. And then, of course, uh, you know, the other state institutions that are elected, like like, for instance, in the case of Peru, we had the historic election of a left wing president, Pedro Castillo. But he hasn't been able to really do anything because not only is the military against him, not only is the oligarchy against him, but he doesn't even he doesn't have a majority in the Congress. And Gustavo Petro in, in Colombia is going to face a very similar situation where he only has 20 percent of the Congress belonging to his party. So it's going to be a very difficult situation. So in general, I think people need to to enrich their understanding of how politics actually works, because this liberal idea that everything politics is all about elections is just laughably naive. That's not really where politics actually that's not where power actually lies. And state institutions everywhere are undemocratic. The reality is that this this concept of bourgeois democracy is really naive, and that's not how politics works anywhere in the world. I think it's very interesting too. That's like um, that's something that should be really in the face of Americans, you know, and like they're doing these January six hearings and everything like that. But really, at the end of the day, you know, with more more people invested in in, in Trump in the military apparatus or in the police force. And then, you know, like things can go a different way. Um, and even like the connections that Mike Flynn, his brother, <laughs> who was like in some of the planning meetings, you know, like there, there's connections there, but obviously not enough, but largely, you know, even though, you know, rights are getting stripped away within the United States, uh, as far as, you know, uh, reproductive healthcare, voting, you know, all sorts of labor rights, there's still like, oh, hey, well, we'll just be able to like, oh, vote. We know we'll be able to vote our way out of this. But like, really, that's not how politics work, <laughs> even in the United States, um, who's now like cooing ourselves. But um, I'm hitting on like some of the, the, the multipolarity. Um, and I, I, I think that something that's interesting of his late is this uh, was the summit of the Americas, in which case the United States tried, you know, did not invite um 
a delegation from uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and um, and I'm sorry, I'm losing the third one. Nicaragua. Um, Nicaragua. Um, but uh, Mexico and uh, their president uh, Amlo had a, had a had a very, I mean, I think interesting and 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 and, and somewhat novel response, um, and actually speaking out against it and um, to say that, you know, he wasn't going to show up as well. Uh, so, I, I mean, like, do you think that speaks to anything? And I think it also, too, on the backs of that, you've got, you know, the U.S. sending delegations to Venezuela to discuss some oil deals uh, off of, uh, you know, right off the back of the uh, uh, Russia-Ukrainian war. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you could just, you know, like, give me some highlights or at least what you think on um, – some of these current developments and, you know, a country like Mexico pushing back on U.S. hegemony. Absolutely. This is a huge part of this discussion of a move toward a multipolar world. The decline in U.S. unipolar hegemony is not just about the rise of China and also Russia, although, of course, that's that's probably the most important factor, the fact that China has, through this unique socialist model, been able to go from a colonized country in 1948 to now having less than 100 years later, the largest economy on earth. That's, that's a huge shift, of course, and we can't underestimate that. But at the same time, another massive important part of this move toward a multipolar world is the growing independence of Latin America, which for 200 years has been treated like a U.S. colony, going back to the Monroe Doctrine. Next year is the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. And we see that Joe Biden continues to basically invoke this kind of uh, colonialist mentality. He recently gave a speech where he said that Latin America is not the U.S. backyard. It's our front yard, which obviously doesn't doesn't make anything. You flipped. <laughs> yeah. So like, it, it shows that regardless of, you know, whether or not it's a Democrat or Republican, they still see Latin America as the imperial yard belonging to the U.S., but even more centrist forces in the region refuse to refuse to go along with this kind of colonialist program. We see that not only Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua refused to attend the Summit of the Americas. Of course, the U.S. did not invite them, but they also all said that even if they were invited, they would refuse to attend because it's illegitimate. They also those are the three countries that are not part of the U.S.-dominated Organization of American States, which was created in 1948 by the U.S. government as a coalition of right-wing anti-communist regimes in Latin America, including Nicaragua's puppet military dictatorship of the Somoza dynasty. So they refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the summit in the first place. But, of course, they have socialist governments. What was even more significant is seeing the left-leaning governments, but more moderate governments in Mexico, Honduras, and and also, even more incredibly, uh, Guatemala and El Salvador, which don't have left-wing governments. And then, of course, the socialist government in Bolivia, all boycotting. So in total, there were eight presidents from countries in Latin America who boycotted the Sony of the Americas. So in, to summarize, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Bolivia, also Honduras, Mexico, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And El Salvador has this very strange kind of neoliberal technocratic government of this Bitcoin bro, Bukele, whose politics are very complicated, but he didn't attend in protest of the Biden administration's policies against his government. And even the right wing leader of 
Guatemala, who's a conservative, Alejandro Jamaitai, his he didn't attend either in protest of the Biden administration imposing sanctions on, on his government. And then furthermore, we saw these comments from AMLO, who is reviving this kind of Mexican independent foreign policy that goes back to the early 20th century and something called the uh, Estrada Doctrine. And this is extremely important because one, Mexico has one of the largest countries in the world. It's not talked about a lot because in the U.S. there's so much racism against Mexicans. But Mexico is a significant political and economic power. It is the second largest economy in Latin America after Brazil. It's uh, in the top 15 largest countries on earth by population. And Mexico, going back to the 1910s, has a, a streak of revolutionary history and after the Mexican Revolution, there were a series of progressive governments, including socialist-leaning governments, most famously uh, Lázaro Cárdenas. And Cárdenas and the kind of Cárdenista movement in Mexico has very strong presence in the Morena party of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, the current president. And he's bringing back this doctrine of the, they call the Estrada Doctrine, which says that Mexico is not aligned. And that's extremely important, considering, of course, this is a country that's the southern neighbor of the U.S., the global hegemon. This is a country that has a 3,000-kilometer border with the U.S. Both the U.S. and Mexico are each the country's top trading partner. And yet Mexico, under AMLO, has maintained this policy of independent foreign, this foreign policy of independence and respect for sovereignty. So Mexico opposed the U.S.-backed coup in Bolivia. Mexico refused to recognize Juan Guaido. That doesn't mean that it's a friend of Chavismo in Venezuela, but it refused to recognize the U.S. coup puppet in Venezuela, which was very important in delegitimizing the coup attempt. And finally, we've seen that AMLO, not only did he not attend the summit, but he has been instead calling for strengthening the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, the CELAC, which is an alternative to the OAS. And the difference is the OAS is all of the countries in the Americas, and that includes Canada and the U.S., whereas the CELAC includes all of the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, but it excludes the U.S. and Canada. So it's a much more democratic representative organization. And Mexico last year held a summit of the CELAC in Mexico City. And uh, in fact, President López Obrador has openly said that the OAS should be abolished. It should, we should be done with the OAS. And he also, at the same time, he just took a historic trip to Cuba. And that's very important because as recently as 2002, 20 years ago, Mexico hosted a summit of the Americas in which they refused to invite Cuba and the right-wing government of Mexico at the time, Vicente Fox, who was a U.S. puppet, he called Fidel Castro, who was at that time the leader of Cuba still, and he told Fidel, he said, all right, we know that you're not participating because, of course, you're not part of the OAS. Cuba was kicked out of the OAS in 1962 after the revolution. And and then he Vicente Fox, the right-wing Mexican president, told Fidel, he said, all right, well, I will give you permission. You can come to Mexico and you can eat dinner with me for 30 minutes between 1 and 1.30 p.m. But then you have to leave the country because George Bush is coming. I don't want to embarrass George Bush. So... In 20 years, we've seen a complete 180 in Mexico's foreign policy. And that is another example of the decline in U.S. unipolar hegemony because the U.S. basically 
had this kind of neo-colonial puppet regime in Mexico from really the 1980s or 1990s until 2018. And there was 40 years of neoliberalism. And when AMLO won the election, which was stolen from him in 2012, but he was able to win by a large enough margin in 2018 that they couldn't steal it from him. And in his inauguration speech, he said, the long night of neoliberalism is over. And once again, I need, to, I need to stress this point. Neoliberalism is the phase of capitalism dominated by U.S. unipolar hegemony. So this, this massive uprising against neoliberalism we see around the world is, it's not a coincidence that it's coming at the same time as the rise of a multipolar world because it's part of the same process. Because again, you couldn't resist neoliberalism when there was no other alternative but U.S. domination, the IMF, and the World Bank. Hey, one more thing that you said in the in 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 the video uh, about multipolarity that you put out, which I think everybody should check out because, like, it's actually a very good condensed. I think you spoke uh, at a conference or something like that. That uh, was where it was recorded. It's it's like an excerpt from it. Uh, it's a good cond condensed version of uh, the argument that you make for why we're headed headed towards a multipolar world. Um, and in that, like, you kind of make the case for why. Um, a revolution is not possible within the imperial core and like how you point out like all of these uh, even the successful revolutions of the 19th uh, sorry the 20th century uh, were um, outside um, the imperial core and like you kind of make the case uh, of germany and uh, i don't know what exact i forget what uh, other country that you used as an example to show that that of, of an unsuccessful turn uh, go around of this uh, can you like uh, ex extrapolate that to the present day U.S. and whether or not you think an, a revolution is actually possible in the imperial core? Because like we hear uh, consistent iterations of uh, um, like how multiple uh, U.S. unipolarity or hegemony can be thwarted from within the United States uh, in any context. Like, And, I, and I, I definitely think that multipolarity seems to be a, a good step forward in that direction because it, it, the, the military strength and the domination of the United States need to actually be pushed back against if if there if there is to be any kind of progress be made as far as like uh, you know diminishing us standing in the world is to be concerned but uh, is there any approach or uh, way by which like us um, hegemony and uh, unipolarity can be threatened within the context of the united states itself is the revolution possible within the imperial core in the, in the us right now well th those are a few different questions that are mixed up together and i, I want to unpack them a little bit so one very slight correction um, I didn't say that I think revolution is impossible in the imperial core. I said that historically there have been no revolution, at least in the socialist era after the bourgeois revolutions, there have been no revolutions in the imperial core. Right. And I, and I said that I don't think it's necessarily impossible. In fact, I hope it's possible. Uh, I hope it is, but uh, I have a few thoughts about this. So I, I argued in the talk that we have to accept the reality that although the classical Marxists in the 19th and early 20th century were right about pretty much everything. There were a few things they were wrong about, which are important. One, I think one of their main um, errors, and this isn't, I'm not necessarily blaming them for this because this is the historical context they were operating in. They didn't, they couldn't tell what would happen in the future, but their argument, not just Marx, the argument of many other socialists and those who followed in the Marxist tradition they argued that revolution would happen in the imperial core, specifically in the most developed capitalist nations, that is Germany. 
And this was the position even after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, the Bolshevik leadership assumed that the revolution would continue sp expanding west into Europe. And there was an attempted revolution in 1918 in Germany, and it failed. And then, of course, there were there were debates going on inside the Soviet leadership. And, of course, Trotsky infamously argued that the revolution would be impossible unless it expanded west into the imperial core. And he spent his life trying to have revolution in the imperial core and attacking revolutions that succeeded in the global south and collaborating with imperialism. And then the other leadership in the Soviet Union decided that, well, we have to continue building socialism. And this is mistakenly referred to as socialism in one country, but that's not true, actually. It wasn't socialism in one country because the Soviet Union had 15 republics and it continued to spread socialism. But that socialism was largely in the global south, not for lack of trying in the imperial core. But the reality is that if you look at every socialist revolution after the Bolshevik Revolution, it was in the periphery. So China in 1949, Cuba in 1959, and then, of course, Vietnam, Laos, across Latin America, Nicaragua, across Africa with the decolonial revolution in Algeria against French colonialism, uh, in uh, Zimbabwe, in Mozambique, and Angola. But unfortunately, there was never a socialist revolution in the imperial core. Now, does that mean that it's impossible? I don't think it's necessarily impossible, but I think we also need to to have a more sophisticated understanding of how revolutions work. Because one, the Russian Revolution was a unique revolution in the sense that, yes, it was a revolution in an imperialist country. But we need to keep in mind that in the context of the European empires, Russia was probably the weakest of all of the, in, the European empires. The Tsarist Empire, it was an empire, Rush, the Tsarist Empire, but it was not nearly as strong as the British, French, and German empires. So even in the context of Europe, Lenin constantly pointed out how Russia was backward compared to the rest of Europe. And that's why the Bolshevik leaders at first were very uh, concerned about the fact that revolution succeeded there and did not succeed in the more developed, industrialized capitalist countries. So even in the context of Russia, it was one of the less developed countries in the imperial core. And furthermore, we need to also understand that the Bolshevik Revolution, when it started, it was really a kind of coup. And then the revolution happened after 1917, right? Like revolu revolutions don't happen in one day. Revolutions are processes. And the Bolsheviks seized power in a brilliant st strategic move at a, at a time of cr um, at critical weakness of the Tsarist Empire when there was massive uprisings going on because of World War One and massive food shortages and labor uprisings, they seized power. And then the revolution took, took stage in the subsequent four years during the Civil War. And of course, Russia was invaded by over a dozen imperialist countries, including the U.S. And they tried to, as Winston Churchill said, to, to strangle the Bolshevik baby in its crib. And they did, they did not succeed. But we need to understand that that revolution did not just immediately happen in 1917. Similarly, in China, the revolution didn't just happen in 1949. In fact, 1949 was the, was the end of the revolution. The actual Chinese revolution was a decades-long process going back to the foundation of the Communist Party of China in 1921. And we need to understand that history of the long march and the strategic advances and losses of territories and Hunan and all of that. Like the reality is that you don't just have a revolution and then the next day you control the, the country. 
just as I said, we have, have to have a more sophisticated understanding of how states work and the different institutions of power within the state apparatus. Similarly, we have to have a more sophisticated understanding of revolutions because what all revolutions basically, when they start, they start in a particular territory that is not the entire state. And then they, they gain more and more territory. And eventually when they gain state control, that's when the revolution succeeds. That was certainly the case in Cuba, which was of course a guerrilla movement that began with, you know, a few hundred men and a, and a boat. Very, a very few, rocky boats. beginnings in that one. Yeah. And most of them were, were killed. I mean, let's be real. Most of the men who started and there were women involved. Most of the people who were involved, the fighters were killed. And similarly, in the case of China, I mean, we need to look at a map and look at the long march. I mean, like it is incredible what they accomplished. And keep in mind that on the long march, most of the people who started on the long march did not end. They did not finish the long march. That doesn't mean they all died, but some of them left. Some of them, you know, uh, joined other you know, things that were going on. So the idea of a revolution happening in the imperial core, I think it's possible, but it's not going to just happen where we say one day someone takes power and then instantly, no, it's going to be a, a more complex process. And I think what it's actually going to look like is a civil war. And I don't say this with, with, you know, I don't say this in any way with a smile on my face. I think it's very tragic, but I think we can see the situation in the U S moving toward a revolutionary situation. I think there's a lot of potential, but unfortunately, I think that potential is also coterminant with the very real possibility of civil war. We see these fascists who refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the federal government. Obviously, I hate Biden, but he did win the, the election. But we see a huge percentage of the Republican Party refusing to acknowledge the legitimacy of the elected leadership. We see also that when the Democrats lost, they also refused to recognize the legitimacy of Trump, saying that that Putin and Russia put him in power. We're talking about a we're talking about a, a serious delegitimization of bourgeois power. We also see, I mean, how many white supremacist groups and paramilitary groups that are active across the country. There are thousands of these groups. They're extremely heavily armed. We see local governments that refuse to abide by federal law, and we see these fascists that try to take power on January sixth. I mean, th the reality is that I actually do think that a revolution is possible, but. The fascists also want to take power and they're more and more willing to use violence. So again, it's not just going to be like we're, we have a general strike, like this, this very infantile anarchist view that the state's just going to dissolve and there's going to be mass protest. No, the reality is that much more likely is uh, there's going to be a fascist coup in Texas and they're going to say that we don't, don't recognize the legitimacy of the federal government, similar to the civil war, the first civil war. And they're going to say, we create this, you know, whatever, white supremacist republic or whatever, and they're going to strike, start trying to ethnically cleanse Latinos or whatever. And then they're going to have people who create like self-defense units. I mean, let's be real. Like that's a much more likely scenario. So we, we need to have, yeah. again, a, a more sophisticated understanding of how revolutions work, because this this like this people like people on Reddit who just say we're going to have like a revolution tomorrow. I mean, that's not how revolutions work historically. No, and I think, like, you make a very good point is that, like, and maybe not revolution would be a good point or a good <clears throat> term to use, but uh, significant shift in power dynamics uh, is happening towards the right. You know, that's and, that, and that's something that is not new. Um, and, you know, Pascal Robert from uh, Black Agenda Report and This is Revolution, you know, 
talks about the the 50 year counter revolution, um, which is basically like as much as the United States government was willing to go, you know, towards actual like liberties, freedoms. And then after that, you know, you've got the past 50 years, which is a, a re like rolling all of those back. And then you, I guess in, in a lot of people's minds, you expect that, that pendulum to swing back and forth. We can look at the, you know, Bernie Sanders um, campaigns and say, oh, hey, this may be the pendulum swinging in one way. But, as you know, like those campaigns lately failed, those movements have kind of been fractured in, in a lot of ways. Um, but you do see the attempt, uh, uh, you know, attempted coup on Janu- uh, January 6th. But also, too, just the continuing of that movement, of that push. You know, and like what's happening in the courts right now is just another stage. You know, this is not the fine. You know, like everyone, uh, I think what's 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 horrible is that some people assume that this is like, oh, the dog caught the car. No, this the dog's still chasing <laughs> after this. You know, theocratic or you know, kingdom that I guess that they want to create. Um, but that's how shit works. You know, I think you accurately point to a lot of elements armed elements willing to do violence elements that are a part of this movement uh on the right that literally you know lock people in fear from resistance uh but what's very scary is that at some point in time in the future you know they will be activated they will be engaged you know what and what who who is there what are their capabilities to fight against that that's that's kind of up to you know i guess us yeah, we need to understand that revolutions happen when a state is delegitimized. And we're seeing this process very rapidly in the U.S., and especially from the far right and the very real possibility of an actual fascist takeover. Now, I think I don't disagree with like, you know, there are sometimes it's like this kind of ultra leftist argument that like the U.S. is already fascist to fascist regime. I don't necessarily disagree with all of that argument, I think the U.S. is certainly a very authoritarian regime. I, fascism has a very specific definition, and you could say that there are definitely elements of fascism in the United States because it's founded on genocide and white supremacy and Jim Crow. But I, I'm talking about an actual fascist takeover. And I, I think that's a very real possibility in the upcoming 20 years. It's a very dangerous moment. And But we also need to understand, though, that that's also when revolutions take place historically. The Bolsheviks took power at a moment when the czarist regime was completely delegitimized and, and, and Kerensky was completely delegitimized. You had this attempt at having like a facade of a parliamentary government, like a constitutional monarchy, and it was completely delegitimized. It continued to send millions of young Russians into the meat grinder of this pointless inter-imperialist war. And then the, there was a moment of crisis. The state lost legitimacy. And people decided they wanted to try something different. And that that was also equally true in China. There was this Kuomintang government, which was increasingly corrupt and illegitimate. And in the countryside, there was massive uprisings going on. And the communists were part of that upri- those uprisings. But it was also in the context of a civil war that that continued even despite World War II, that also is co-determinant with... Japanese imperialism and the Japanese invasion and colonization of China before World War II officially began. I mean, people think 
In the West, there's this Western-centric understanding that World War II began in 1939 with the Nazi invasion of Poland, but it also, it really actually began in 1937 with Japan's genocidal attacks on China and Mongolia. So we need to understand that all of these revolutions happen in the context of, let's be real, of war and massive civil conflict and delegitimization of the state. And I don't say this with, again, with a smile on my face, I think Leftists should not romanticize violence. It is horrible. War is horrible. But we should also be smart and not dumb liberals and not infantile anarchists. And we need to actually study this history and see that, you know, look at Cuba. The Cuban Revolution happened when the there was massive unrest. The Batista dictatorship was completely illegitimate. People were rising up against him. The the movement led by Fidel, the July movement, was not the only revolutionary movement. There were other revolutionary movements that didn't succeed. And similarly, across Latin America and the Global South, there were many movements that didn't succeed. And in, here in Nicaragua in 1979, that was that the when the Sandinistas took the capital, Managua, on July 19th, 1979, that was the victory of the revolution. But the revolution had gone on for over a decade, going back to the 1960s, and there was an armed struggle and there were, you know, there was an ebb and flow. They sometimes were defeated and they sometimes won. And they won control in the mountains. They got support of the campesinos, the peasants. And then they took, started taking over cities. And then they, they gradually marched toward the capital. And then they took the capital. And so it was basically a civil war. So we need to understand that basically the vast majority of revolutions that have happened historically have been in the context of that kind of unrest. And I'm not saying that that's good in the U.S. Obviously, that's awful. And we should do anything we can to prevent a fascist takeover of the U.S. But what I am saying is that this is also a revolutionary situation. And it's at moments like these historically when if the left is not organized, then the fascists take over, as they did in Germany, as they did in Italy. But if the, if the left is organized... The left can take power and defeat the fascists and have a revolution. And that's what they did in China. And that's what they did in Cuba. And they've done it in many other countries. Uh, one way that the revolution, I mean, like uh, the, the word revolution is kind of like uh, gotten a little diluted, uh, especially uh, over uh, the 21st century, definitely. Um, and I think that like, uh, especially there's too many, as there's, there's too many podcasts just throwing up revolutionary. <laughs> it's just silly. It's getting silly. Just get yeah. over it. We've just like got this is called revolutionary tracks as well, like uh, just just to point out. So uh, but but that said, uh, one of the ways in which uh, I mean, like uh, is to speak about the summit of Americas, uh, one of the uh, so-called so uh, leftists who got elected recently, uh, Gabriel Boric. Um, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Uh, he actually Boric. Yeah. So it's actually uh, a he, Croatian name. His right. Of Croatian descent. So he he's like kind of uh, after after like being a very promising um, like candidate who got elected etc uh, goes and uh, criticizes Cuba and like actually attends the summit of, summit of Americas and stuff like that. So uh, one of the kind of common trope among all of the uh, successes uh, of leftists in um, in South America has been the fact that they were uh, they they all ran as uh, more moderate candidates and tried to uh, tried the social democratic approach of like getting elected 
elected uh, into office and trying to implement policies and stuff like that, which seems to be the kind of revolutionary strategy, quote unquote, in the United States as well, where, uh, you know, the, the DSA and the, the Bernie Sanders wing um, is basically attempting something to that effect where uh, basically getting elected into office by an, by like taking over the Democratic Party or uh, and I guess like this is the one place where it might be distinctive from that. So I I really wanted to wanted you to speak to this as to what actually distinguishes or separates the successful leftist movements in the in South America um, from the attempts of, uh, uh, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders wing of the of the of the movement uh where i think like the more obvious one is the fact that like bernie sanders and, and the uh people who are uh, and dsa and all the organizations that are following him seem to want to enter the democratic party and take it over where uh, i feel like the movements in south america seem to have created their own parties and stuff like that so uh what do you think are some distinctions and what are they doing right and like uh, is this social democratic approach towards a more revolutionary organizing successful in your view uh, especially in south american cases in the present it's more complicated. We need to understand that in Latin America, there have been several phases of revolutionary periods. So, of course, they're going back to the bourgeois revolutions against Spanish colonialism. You have Simon Bolivar, the most famous and most important revolutionary uh, who, is who would be considered Venezuelan today. And, of course, um, in Central America, there was another figure, Francisco Morazan, who also led uh, an armed uprising successfully against Spanish colonialism. So those were the bourgeois revolutions. Then, of course, is the Haitian Revolution. And then fast forwarding throughout the early 20th century, there are many attempts at revolutions that are crushed. And this leads to the 20th century and 21st century. And I borrow this analysis from the Sandinista Front. And specifically, the Sandinistas have a, an intellectual who's the, the son of the founder of the party. The most important founder of the Sandinista Front was Carlos Fonseca Amador. And Carlos Fonseca was a Marxist and a, uh, and a revolutionary, and he was murdered by the, the U.S.-backed puppet regime of Somoza. And his son is a prominent leader of the Sandinista Front. His name is Carlos Fonseca Teran. And he has, he has written articulated a, a, a tripartite analysis, a three-part analysis of Latin American revolutionary history in the 20th century. And his argument is that you have the first wave of revolutionary movements in the early 20th century during the period of dictatorships, and those are represented by people like Agosto Sandino, who in the 1920s and 30s created a guerrilla army with revolutionaries from across Latin America, including socialists and communists, including Faramundo Martí, who was the leader of the Salvadorian Communist Party, who joined the army in defense of national sovereignty that was led by Gosto Sandino against the U.S. military occupiers. So communists and socialists played an important role in that, even though Sandino himself was not necessarily what you could call a communist or a socialist, although he was a very progressive left-wing nationalist. So that's the first kind of wave of revolutionary struggles. And unfortunately, most of them were defeated, right? Pretty much all of them were defeated. And then you have the second wave, which begins after the Cuban Revolution in 1959. That was the first guerrilla movement that was able to take power and, and keep state power after 1959. And then that enters the second wave of revolutionary struggles. And those are armed struggles. And it also is a movement toward the rise of bourgeois democracy in Latin America. 
So you have, of course, Plan Condor, and you have a series of dictatorships in, in the, the CIA coup against Allende in 1973 in Chile, and the coup in Brazil, and the coup in Argentina. And you have these armed struggles, and then that, that era ends with the rise of Hugo Chavez and the, uh, excuse me, sorry, that, that, excuse me, that right, that ends with the rise of the Sandinista revolution in 1979. Again, this is the analysis of a intellectual from the Sandinista front. And I think it's a very instructive analysis. So the first phase is after, well, the first phase is before the Cuban revolution. And then it, it ends with the, the succession of to power of the Cuban revolutionaries in 1959. The second phase ends with the rise to power of the Sandinistas in 1979. And then from then on, you also have the demilitarization of the struggles and the move towards social democracy. And then the third phase, which we're in now, would be the rise to power of Hugo Chavez in, uh, in 1999, 1998, when he wins the election in 1999. So ironically, they were actually 20 years apart, which kind of makes it neat historically. But when Hugo Chavez comes to power, that's the new phase that we're in, which you could call socialism in the 21st century. That's what Hugo Chavez called it. That's what Rafael Correa in Ecuador called it. Socialism in the 21st century. And their argument was that they're not necessarily against armed struggle, but in this particular historical moment, there is a, an opening with these bourgeois democracies that will allow the left maybe to try to take power electorally. Although we've seen a series of coups and attacks on on these democracies. So it's a complicated process. It's not simply just voting out the right and voting in socialism. It's a much more complicated process. We see that with the coup in 2002 against Hugo Chavez. We see that with the constant coup attempts now against Nicolas Maduro. We see that with the constant coup attempts and sanctions against Venezuela and Nicaragua and the blockade on Cuba. And so I think that if we're talking about the social democracies in Latin America, we can't understand them without ignoring all that history I mentioned. That's why I spent so much time talking about that history, because in Latin America, the left is very sophisticated. There are a lot of very good intellectuals. I would recommend that people read Atilio Boron. I mean, what's so sad is how few of these intellectuals are known out of Latin America, but they're really brilliant. Atilio Boron is an Argentine socialist intellectual, and he has brilliant analysis of Latin American revolutionary history. He himself was involved in Argentine revolutionary movements, and his analysis is very similar. And he says, we need to understand that the social democracy, the social democratic movements that took power since the rise of Hugo Chavez have done so not against armed struggle as a tactic, but rather understanding that it's part of a diversity of tactics. So, yes, you can take power, but you need to understand that it's not as simple as simply saying we're just going to vote. And that's one of the problems, of course, of the Democratic Party is just vote, vote. No, it's it's um, you see this, especially, you know, it's very clear in Bolivia. In Bolivia, when Evo Morales came to power, he came to power as part of a wave of social movements against corrupt neoliberal governments that were overthrown by mass popular uprisings that were trying to privatize water and privatize other resources. And Eva Morales came to power as a representative of the social movements, which have always been very revolutionary in Bolivia. And his party, the Movement Towards Socialism Party, is technically, it's called the MAS, Movement Towards Socialism, but it's also MAS-IPSP. 
and IPSP stands for the Political Instrument for the Sovereignty of the Peoples. So the party is itself the political instrument of the social movements. And similarly, Hugo Chavez, when he came to power, what's not mentioned is, yes, he was democratically elected. And, you know, it's important to stress the fact that he was democratically elected because a bunch of capitalists and imperialists try to delegitimize the, the democratic elements of the Venezuelan government and the Bolivarian revolution. But for also the liberals who fetishize bourgeois democracy, we also need to understand that why was Hugo Chavez popular? Hugo Chavez was popular because he was a military officer who led a failed coup attempt against a murderous right-wing neoliberal regime. That part is conveniently left out. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, in Venezuela, the left organized and they won power. No, 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 no. In Venezuela, a progressive socialist military officer, Hugo Chavez, attempted a coup against a right-wing neoliberal government that massacred hundreds of people in the Caracaso, which was a massive uprising against neoliberal reforms that were imposed, that were demanded by the IMF. And in return, the right-wing government of Carlos Andrés Pérez, CAP, he ordered the military to shoot protesters, and some military officers refused to follow the orders, and they said, we're not going to shoot our fellow countrymen. Hugo Chávez was one of those military officers, and then he decided to try to organize a progressive coup against the regime, and he failed, and he was imprisoned. But the coup attempt was very popular, and when he was released from prison, he campaigned promising to implement a revolution but by the ballot box instead of military coup. And he won on that platform campaigning as a military officer. So it's not as simple as saying that they just voted in socialism. These are all hybrid processes that involve elements of democracy, bourgeois democracy and the ballot box, elements of social movements and the labor movement, and even elements of armed struggle and the military. And of course, we see this in Colombia as well. It's not a coincidence that Gustavo Petro is a former guerrilla. I mean, in Latin America, you can't just, uh, I'm not saying you're doing this, but sometimes liberals in the U.S. try to to take the, Lat the history in Latin America and impose it on the U.S. and say, well, in Latin America, they could vote it into power. But no, but Latin America has a very different history. And you, you can't understand how the social democratic movements took power without understanding that history of the armed struggle and social movements. Now, if, if anything, uh, you, what you said is like su supremely clarifying because exactly for the reason that you just said, which is that like even now uh, there is the, you know, a misconception that uh, if the U.S. were to follow the trajectory of uh, what, what is happening in Latin America, then uh, social democracy will succeed here. Uh, but on that note, like uh, I, I just want to say that we are open to calls and uh, I saw a caller, Derek, uh, you called in twice. I'm really sorry that uh, we can take the call. Feel free to call again. Okay, here you go. Um, I am going to take this call. You're on mute, uh, unmute button is on the right. Yes. Right. Thanks. Um, Hey, thank you. Um, I was, uh, listening to the, uh, part where, uh, Ben was talking about the uh, definition of fascism being very specific. Um, uh, personally, I think that it's a mistake to limit the definition of fascism. I think it's important to extend it um, in a comprehensive way that takes into account uh, um, the merger of corporate and 
and Joe. Uh, you're cutting off a little bit. Can you can you just repeat what you just said? Uh, I think my connection is just bad, so I'm giving up. Thanks, though. No, no, I think I think I think I get your question about the the definition of fascism being a key element of being the merger of corporate and state power. Is that your right. question? Um, Did he leave? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, if I have a bad connection, I don't want to bother. So, thanks, so. No, go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. Now. Go ahead. Repeat, repeat yourself. Yeah, it's fine now. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, well, I guess I, like you can address that point. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have a lot of thoughts about this. And I'll try to briefly address them, although I'm not, I'm not good at being brief. So, th- this understanding of fascism is actually kind of misunderstood. And this, this is based on a misquote from Mussolini. And Mussolini said fascism would better be understood as the merger of corporatism and the state. But that's, but that's based on like this dumb Ron Paul libertarian misunderstanding of what he, he said by corporatism. Corporatism, corporatismo, is a specific concept created by Mussolini, the fascist leader, as an understanding of the body politic as a body, as, is, as in a corpus. As in, that's where the word corporate, corporate comes from as a body. And his understanding of fascism was that everything in society is part of this body and the fascist leadership is going to do what's best for the body. And so when he's talking about merger, merger of corporate power in the state, he's talking about it in the context of his idea of, of fascism that's based on, you know, this ultra nationalist idea of bringing back the Roman Empire and, and everything is subordinated to this leadership that's trying to act on behalf of the nation and bringing back the, you know, the, um, this idea of pelagenetic nationalism, bringing back the, the gold, the golden era of the past that supposedly, you know, we could, we could just bring back and every element of fascism, every fascist movement has an element of this. Looking at the, the Nazis who are trying to bring back, you know, like ancient pagan elements and the glory of like the, like the barbarian folk or whatever. And you see this ISIS was trying to bring back the caliphate. And you see this with, um, you know, the Italian fascists trying to bring back the Roman Empire and using the fasces, which was itself a symbol of Rome because it was used by the Roman magistrates. It was like this symbol. It was like this um, instrument of like a discipline. So the thing about fascism, though, is it's not just about the corporate power merging with the state, because according to that definition, every single capitalist country is fascist. Because every capitalist country is a dictatorship of the capitalist class, which controls the state. That's what capitalism is. Capitalism is the dictatorship of the capitalist class. So this is why I, I think we need to resist this dumb, facile, libertarian, Ron Paul understanding of fascism about corporatism. No, that's what corporatism in that Ron Paul understanding of the merging of corporate power in the state is capitalism. But the libertarians try to distinguish corporatism from capitalism they say crony capitalism because they're trying to argue another form of capitalism which is the same thing ever since capitalism was created in the 16th century it has always been the merger of state and corporate power going back to the dutch east trading company and the 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 colonial british companies that colonized the u.s it has always been uh, the state control uh, and, and the state, the capitalist control of the state. So we need to understand fascism as, as a specific political movement in its origins in counter-revolution. And that's why I think, you know, you could say there's elements of fascism in the U.S., but we're moving toward a fascistic state because 
fascism emerges when there is this moment of systemic crisis and where the left can take power and fascism is the tool of the capitalist class to prevent the left from taking power. This is exactly what Hitler did in eradicating the left in Germany. The first people in the concentration camps in Germany were communists and socialists and labor organizers. Even before Jews, of course, six million Jews were murdered by the Nazis. I'm not in any way downplaying the anti-Semitic element, but we need to understand that the first people thrown in the camps were communists. And Hitler himself intentionally tried to inflate Jewishness and Judaism with the left. If you read the disgusting, racist, genocidal writings of Hitler, like Mein Kampf, he is very clear that his enemy is Marxism. His enemy are communists, and he even uses his anti-Semitism in the context of anti-Marxism, trying to conflate communism with Jews and saying, you know, Karl Marx was Jewish and blah, blah, blah. So we need to understand that fascism is a violent genocidal response by the capitalist class against a revolutionary movement. It is a counter-revolutionary revolution to take state power to crush the left at a moment of revolutionary uh, at a moment of revolutionary change. And that's exactly what happened in Italy. It's exactly what happened in Germany. And that's what the czarists tried to do in 1917 through 1921. And we need to understand that the white army was proto-fascist. The white army was genocidal and wanted to carry out genocide against Jews and other ethnic minorities. They had this kind of exterminationist mentality, which is a fascist mentality. And that's a response to a moment of revolutionary change. So that's why I think we need to have a more specific understanding of fascism because fascism is not, otherwise, if we have a loose definition, we can't understand the difference between just fascism and capitalism. If we just say that it's merger of, of corporate power and the state, then every single capitalist country on earth right now is fascist. And the, the, all that does is actually water down our understanding of fascism. And then it makes it harder for the left to fight it because if every country is fascist, then that means we have to unite with all the liberals everywhere. Because if a government truly is fascist, then you have to create a united front and a popular front, not just with the other left-wing forces. You have to create a, a front with the liberals against the fascists. And I don't think that's the proper response right now in the U.S. The proper response is not to unite with the Democratic Party against the Republicans. That's what, that's what social Democrats have been trying to do for decades. And look, 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 look where it's gotten them. That clearly has not succeeded. It, I think, I mean, would it be fair to say that uh, fascism is more of the final boss of uh, capitalism? Derek, I'm sorry to cut you off again. I know I'm blabbering a lot. But if people want to understand fascism with a better Marxist understanding, read Georgi Dimitrov, who was the Bulgarian communist leader who is one of the most badass anti-fascists in history. Dimitrov was, he was in Germany at the time of the Reichstag fire and the, the Nazis blamed him and other communists for the Reichstag fire, which might've been a, a false flag by the way, which also is an important thing to keep in mind, historically speaking of fascists carrying out attacks and then blaming it on communists. But anyway, so Dimitrov was arrested by the Nazis and he was put on trial and he represented himself in court, you know, like you see in movies where people are like, I'm going to represent myself. But this badass actually did it. And he, he just schooled them. I mean, like he was incredible. And, and his, his, uh, testimony in court, he called for 
people around the world to unify against fascism. And he gave this incredible speech and and he became like an international celebrity. And he was so well respected that the Nazis weren't able to execute him. And then he later was able to flee Nazi Germany and went to the Soviet Union. And he wrote a book about how to fight fascism. And I mean, he 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 articulates what fascism is and how to fight it. And he specifically stresses the element of how Hitler was the henchman used by the German capitalists to prevent a socialist revolution. The German state was in fundamental crisis with mass inflation, with the kind of economic problems we're starting to see in the U.S. And the German capitalists were afraid that it was on the verge of a socialist revolution and they had to be drastic. They had to be even more authoritarian and brutal in their tactics in order to save capitalism. And they were willing to ally with fascism to try to save capitalism. Yeah, uh, just uh, bringing back Derek to finish. Uh, and he's been on the call for a long time. So I'm just going to take the call and uh, see if uh, just giving you a couple of minutes. Just uh, share your thoughts. Cool. Maybe I'll last more than five seconds. Um, all right. How about uh, I appreciate the answer, by the way, that you had to offer or the opinion. Um, how about rigged elections? Should we consider that to be fascism? Um attacking whistleblowers and journalists, uh, using torture, uh, going outside the, the bounds of both our laws and international laws, um, using propaganda against our citizens, um, legalized propaganda now. Uh, you know, all of these things, how about those? Should we include those in a definition of fascism in the United States where we have unique uh, conditions um, in many ways that are not necessarily comparable with the events that have transpired in other parts of the world? Yeah, everything you're describing is authoritarianism. And the U.S. is an authoritarian regime. I say that all, I say that frequently. And no one should dispute that. They should be very clear. The U.S. is not a democracy. It's an authoritarian regime. And authoritarian regimes around the world, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, they regularly torture people and impose propaganda on their populations and imprison journalists and whistleblowers. So fascism is specific. I mean, because again, if we, if we, if we're not specific with our definition of fascism, then every authoritarian regime on earth is a, is a fascist regime. And then it just waters down the definition. So who determines the definition? Uh, academics who are absolutely unable or unwilling to fight fascism when fascism needs to be fought. Um, who determines the, the, the definition of fascism? People that have defined it in places where they have been crushed by fascism, you know? No, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, if anyone's qualified to talk about what fascism is, it's probably uh, Georgi Dimitrov who helped defeat fascism and wrote books about it. And also maybe, I don't know, Joseph Tito, who also in Yugoslavia helped to defeat fascism. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm with you. Like, I'm not, I'm not a... I don't like academics. I'm crit as critical of them as you are. But like, I'm talking about actual revolutionaries who led armed struggles against fascist regimes and won. And we need to read their understanding of what fascism is because today people just throw around fascism like it, you know, like it, as, if, as if it's as if it's the same thing as authoritarianism, but it's not. They're different. I mean, fascism is authoritarian. All fascist regimes are authoritarian, but not all authoritarian regimes are fascist. I understand what you're saying, and I don't have a problem with your opinion. I think it's debatable. 
I think it's a mistake to limit that debate, though. Um, you know, I, I think it's a mistake to kind of push people in this kind of reflexive, automatic way into this misguided idea that fascism can be identified simply by goose stepping and swastika tattoos and shit. Well, that's not what I said. I mean, I yeah, I don't, I, I'd say, like, I'm not saying you said that. I'm just saying, I think there's room for debate and I think it's, it's maybe, it's well, not a yes. good idea to, to cut that debate out by saying, no, that's not fascism. Nope. That's not fascism. You well, know what I mean? And, and I'm going to, I'm going to just rewind. Yeah, hold on, hold on there. I was, I'm going to rewind it because at first, you know, like your, your question was a little bit cut off. And, and I think Ben was responding to, you know, like kind of like you trying to say, you know, like what is the, uh, how do you get to the correct definition? Uh, ben brings up, you know, a, like a talk that I've seen quite a bit of just the connection between the state and uh, corporations. I think Ben makes a very great point of every cap, you know, capitalist country gives a good uh, reference point of uh, Dimitrov as far as who can we go to to learn more about it. Um, but also, I think part of it is that nothing is, is black and white. You know, this is not a light switch. You know, history is very fluid. And, you know, even just talking about uh, a lot of the um, revolutions that have happened. You know, like they, this is not a you know one-off type of thing. So there are things, aspects of you know the country that can definitely be considered like fascistic or dangerously close to fascism. Approaching there, those are the things that are debatable that I don't think anybody's going to disagree with you. But if you have yeah, to yeah. say, is the U.S. right now fascism? Check yes or no. I think it is completely fair for someone to say no extremely authoritarian we have not crossed that line into fascism yet and i think well, and if that, i can add really quickly here i, yeah, I just I want totally to add disagree a... but no no disrespect intended i just i disagree that's all okay you know what i, I mean I, i'm not yeah. accusing you I, anyone of doing the things that i've said but but i think it's important to recognize that a lot of other people are doing those things they're not offering the kind of explanations that you're offering they have this sort of you know closeted so, sentimentality yeah. towards misplaced loyalty to a political party that prevents them from even acknowledging that there might be debate here. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I want to acknowledge, I want to explain why this is not just an academic debate over definitions. I think it is a, a, an important distinction because we need to understand fascism historically and the response of left-wing forces, not only to resist, but to su successfully defeat fascism and the analysis articulated in the 1930s by the international socialist movement against fascism was when fascism took over, you need to form a popular front. And if you, if I'm, and I say this, you as in the general, you, if someone truly thinks the U S is fascist, then the solution would be unite with the liberals and the Democrats who, by the way, are currently in charge against the fascists. No, but like, the reality is that fascism represents a particular political movement. And if and when the U.S. gets to an actual fascist regime, then the left will be forced to unite in a popular in a popular front with liberal elements against fascism. And I don't that that would be a fundamental error at this moment, obviously, because the liberals are in charge. Like we need to understand this history of fascism and the resistance against it. And we can't just if we're going to talk about something like fascism, which is rooted in very particular historical conditions of the 1920s and 30s, 
which, by the way, the U.S. and Western Europe are heading back toward, including mass depression, inflation, unemployment. I mean, those kinds of problems are coming back. And if you think the U.S. is already fascist, then what are you going to call it when it suspends civil liberties completely and suspends elections and there are you know, military forces knocking down doors? Like, obviously, the U.S. is already authoritarian. But the point is, if it's already fascist, then that has serious implications for what we should do to resist it. And it also has serious implications for what it means if, when, for if and when the U.S. becomes even more authoritarian. And unfortunately, the U.S. is definitely going to become much more authoritarian in the years that come. This is just the beginning. Yeah, it's becoming a more authoritarian literally by the day. Uh, we got an- it's not hyperbole, but... Uh, yeah, we got another call. Yeah, we got another caller. We'll we'll take the caller. Uh, I think Marcus and I will have a question each after that, and like maybe talk a little bit. We'll get to talk a little bit about your music and uh, about intellectualism, art, and stuff like that, because that's basically the point of the show. But uh, we got to talk a lot about politics, which is amazing. Anyway, yeah, Sean, you're on for sure. Appreciate it. I th- I think this is a really interesting conversation because it's something like I've I've studied, you know, elements of Nazi Germany and the rise of fascism and and I'll have that and just kind of like the conditions of that development and one of the major factors of the development of a fascism is a weak and ineffectual left because and this is how fascism works. If you have an authoritarian or a government that isn't economically giving benefits to the people within the country, people feel, you know, powerless, they're stressed out, they're depressed. There's two kind of ways to go about dealing with that. You give people more economic means, you know, jobs program, kind of what LBJ did, or you do what kind of Hitler did, which was create an umbrella of kind of easy ideological things to kind of come under and through a particular group within a country coming together and then kind of degrading other people within that country because like if this group has power like the natural the blue the the blonde hair blue eyed germans if well they all come together and everybody who sports them comes together and then they use like authoritarianism and then the congregation the creation of fascists with inside the state you're going to get people working together in very high terms and a very high capacity which will create any level of economic growth and boom i mean just think of if all Americans came together and started working together to kind of benefit the people in America, you're going to have an economic advantage. The problem is that fascism creates this level of engagement through the myopic understanding and like group comprehension of just like, oh, fuck these people. But the reason I bring this up is that we need to understand that like the biggest danger to the creation of fascism right now, I would say, is the Democratic Party because they're weak, they're ineffectual, they choose to do nothing for the government, and a lot of people feel powerless. And as such, if you're a person who feels powerless, you're more and more attracted to the idea of forced forms of authority and power. And the part of the problem is that Democrats have become so ineffective, have cared so little about the people, that that is actually leading more and more people to radical extremism on the right because of the and just because of the fact because they don't fight back the people on the right feel more and more and more emboldened so i think it's also important to kind of understand and know that the democratic party acting as it is is literally leading this country like we are authoritarian but leading this country or allowing fascism to take a much larger hold within the government i mean can you even look at joe biden is complete and utter failure to do anything on roe v wade these conditions lead to a great potentiality for fascist creations within you know a country like the united states and yeah 
I just yeah. uh, the only the only thing I'd I'd push back on is that you know like it is it is the right it is the reactionary right that is necessarily like doing this, um and like this isn't like oh the Democrats are like actually good, you know it's it's it is the fact that like them being ineffectual does not also equate them to them being like the 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 changers in this reality, um and. So uh, yeah, that's the thing. Is like what they say. Like you know, it's it's actually like the Republican Party that has the elements of fascism, but the Democratic Party will just ineffectual to do anything about it. Well, yeah, and and I I don't disagree with you. I think you're definitely right that the Democrats are fueling the way toward this brutal authoritarian, just extreme right wing regime in the U.S. But again, we need to understand that it's simply not true that fascism historically has taken place in in countries with a weak, ineffectual left. It's actually the exact opposite, historically speaking. Germany is a great example. The Communist Party in Germany was massive, very well organized, very influential in the labor movement, and could have potentially taken power. And fascism was a tool used by the big German capitalists who were afraid of a socialist revolution in order to crush the massive left in Germany, because, of course, this is at a moment of extreme economic crisis, of massive depression and inflation, and the left was very well organized and was on the verge of taking power. And similarly, I mean, not, not only in Italy, but let, let's look at another good example, Indonesia. In Indonesia, it had one of the largest communist parties in the world, and it had a progressive left-wing nationalist president, Sukarno. And then there was a fascist coup and a genocidal extermination of between one and three million leftists in Indonesia. Of course, this is all backed by the CIA, which gave lists of communists to the Indonesian military regime of Suharto. I mean, that is a much more classic example of fascism. Or, of course, you know, Pinochet in Chile, which is overthrowing a revolutionary left-wing movement that has popular support and implementing a right-wing fascist regime to crush the left. Fascism is this tool used at these moments of crisis. The thing is, in the U.S., the, the left is so weak that they don't even need that tool, which is why it's slow and it's creeping, right? In the U.S., it's this kind of slow, creeping fascism because the capitalist class, they don't need to use, they don't need to use a fascist coup to take over. They're already getting everything they want slowly over time. And that's why I think, again, it's important to distinguish the two. And the U.S. continues becoming more and more authoritarian. But I, but again, I mean, instead of, focusing on this kind of debate about what fascism is and all that. I think what's more important is that I agree with your point that the Democratic Party continues to be a key factor in why the U.S. becomes more authoritarian, more undemocratic, more just extremely brutal to its people. And that's also why, again, I don't agree with the analysis that the U.S. is fascist, because if you truly agree that something's fascist, then you have to agree with the analysis of those who successfully fought against and defeated fascism that you have to form a popular front with the liberals against the fascists. Uh, we should not form a popular front with the liberals in the U.S. because the liberals are just as responsible for destroying the country. Yeah, yeah, and I, go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to say that, like, when I'm talking about oh, the weak and ineffectual left, I'm talking about, like, the kind of just a general the general like the real political um the real political like uh left versus right is kind of simple people on the right believe that in order to have 
a stable society is difficult. So if certain people lose freedoms, but the society is stable, then that's the right position. Like, let's go with the stable society. Left-wing ideology, and this is not Democrat-Republican, but this is kind of like more the governance. Left-wing ideology is kind of the philosophy and the belief that individual freedoms are the major mechanism of a healthy society, and that at the end of the day, if a society does not actually benefit individuals and give them freedoms, then that society is corrupt and should be changed or destroyed. So I'm talking about like the ineffectual left. I'm not, I'm not talking about it in the fact of like Democrat versus Republican. I'm talking about it in like material gains in the ability to actually achieve real economic, uh, turns. And the problem is, is that at the end of the day, the right authoritarian nature is one that is dictated directly by power and achieving power. And that's how I think like, you know, the, the Hitler, Hitler got in power because, you know, the, the left used Hitler, but you know, he had racist authoritarian language to begin with. So at the end of the day, I think, and I, I would just say like, generally speaking, what I'm talking about is there's two ways to power. One is through force and authority, and that's, you know, the right. The other the other form of power is like community, communal, and moral systems of creation, of caring about one another in a more structured society. The problem is the left is vastly more – that like that argument is a very complex argument to have to make, and it's not as easy as fuck Jewish people, which was the Nazi argument versus the left, which is, you know, we should come together. But but even then, the left still did work with the Nazis, and they were murdered, murdered by them – by the end of it, you know what I mean. So, uh, sure. one, one one historical point: it's simply not true at all. That the left worked with the Nazis. The left never worked with the Nazis. And as you said, I mean, the left were the first people to be murdered and thrown in concentration camps by the Nazis. Okay. In fact, it was the, it was the center forces that worked with the Nazis, including going back at, as as early as as 1918, and the Social Democrats who united with the fa- the proto fascist Freikorps in order to murder the communists. It was the centrists and liberals who, who facilitated the rise of the Nazis because they saw the Nazis as preferable to the communists, which is why, you know, there's this meme that liberals hate socialists more than they hate fascists. Well, that's true historically. Uh, well, I think like one, one thing that Sean, uh, that you touched on, which I kind of want to expand on, which is uh, basically that like you, you said there are two fronts. Uh, one is like political power and the other is like the cultural power. And I guess like because uh, I, I do have to bring it back because that's like the point of the show. Like we, we I do want to emphasize the, the, the lack of uh, and, and even a political will to acquire like a cultural power. You could argue that like a large part of uh as much as the right wing in the United States has like taken power by like entering the school boards and like, uh, you know, doing all of that kind of shit, uh, federal judges and like whatnot. Uh, there's also an equivalent amount of like investment in um, acquiring cultural power through just pure uh, cultural production. Like even uh, right now and like this this morning or something, I think I saw a post by Glenn Greenwald saying that he in, in, in interviewed this Chris Rufo guy. And I was like, you can easily look at that and be like, this is a total creation and a full amount of like money pumped into uh, a discursive format and I, I basically the equivalent of that and I think this is also a point of fecklessness that I want to highlight which is uh, and, and tying it all the way back to Ben you're, uh, you're an artist as well and I think like this should 
uh, boil your blood a little bit, which is that like the entirety of uh, resistance, quote unquote, to uh, right wing fascism or like any kind of anti fascist force almost like uh, defaults to a, a liberalism uh, or, or a Hollywood leftism at best. And like we really don't have a form of intellectual intellectualism or cultural production in the arts that can that can potentially counter um, a right wing uh, you know surge like this it's like it should be very easy to take down these kind of forces culturally and like through uh, intellectual means but like uh, politically it's a different struggle but uh, even there like I find like there's a fecklessness and I don't know how to address that like so uh, could you also speak to the to the point of like how we can um, tackle this uh, cultural domination uh, or by of the right wing um, cul- uh, by in a countercultural sort of way yeah well i say this with all due respect and and i i love the show that you all do and i've listened to some of your episodes and i think it's great to talk about art and politics but i also uh i don't really agree with this idea that some people on the left talk about that you know we're going to transform society with art and all of that. When it comes to that, I actually, I, I agree much more with the, um, I say this as a musician, I love music and it's one of my huge passions in life, but I kind of agree with the more old school Marxist view that, that music and art is part and culture is part of the superstructure. And we have to change the base, not the superstructure. And that when I'm saying in, in clearer terms that, we have to change the power structure of society and the art can be part of that process, but it's not going to change that power structure. And in, in, in many ways, popular art and culture reflects the power structure, not vice versa. And the reality is in the U.S., I mean, you know, I, I agree with combating the right wing in anywhere. And, you know, Chris Rufo, this guy is a total fraud. I mean, he's like a really shady right-wing bigot who's been pushing this anti-gay stuff and he clearly has has some kind of links to some kind of intelligence uh apparatus because he keeps getting these like internal leaks in disney and stuff he's a very shady operative but regardless i do have to say though that if you look at popular culture in the u.s there is a major liberal hegemony we can't pretend like it's the conservative right that controls culture no it's the centrist neoliberal liberals who dominate pretty much all culture and of course they're not the left but we we need to be clear about where culture actually lies i mean i love music i always listen to music i was listening to an album today i'm a musician i make music because if i didn't have music i would go crazy like imagine look how screwed up this world is look how bad everything is you have to have something that gives you meaning in life that's enjoyable and we also have to think about why are, why are we fighting for a more just society? What will we do in a, in a more just socialist society? Well, we would have a lot of free time. And in that free time, we could play music and enjoy movies and go to the beach and stuff. Like, those are things that give life meaning and are enjoyable. But at the same time, just because I enjoy something and it, and it helps give me meaning in life doesn't mean that I think it's an instrument to transform society, right? So I love the thing that I'm not in any way downplaying the work that you're all doing. I think it's great. And I... and I always love, you know, shows that bring together politics and music, but not to be a downer, but I, I actually don't think that the way we're going to get out of fascism <laughs> is by having no. better art. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's, I, that's, 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 that's like, 
we, just we, to clarify, we, wait, one second, yeah. one second. Uh, just to clarify, I, I, I think like basically it's not the art itself. And I, I, I've been like, I think this is this is something that we're absolutely clear about as well. It's not the art itself that's going to do the transformation. It's not like you play uh, one of your, I mean, like we're going to play uh, play out the show uh, with uh, one of your tracks, Ben. And it's like, it's not, it's not like <laughs> oh, we're yeah. going to, if you play that track, it's not like people listen to it and then suddenly they're like totally transformed. It's not like, uh, you know, what is that popular story? Someone played the piano and stopped him stopped his death sentence or something like that um i forget who who it is or um, i don't even know if this is a real story it's, it's the movie the pianist right wasn't that the case that like um, yeah the, yeah so it's not like that it's not the art itself but like that cultural, Brody. <laughs> it, <laughs> cultural production um it is it is a liberal hegemony and i kind of wanted to uh, that's why i wanted to tie it to the back of sean's point which is that if the democratic party is ineffectual in like fighting fascism therefore like fascism is like uh or right-wing forces are gaining uh strength uh then like a liberal hegemony being imposed through culture is also a, a culprit of this of the same thing because like it only inspires more reactionary feelings and i feel like a more revolutionary intellectualism um and a more revolutionary uh culture in which uh art plays an integral role whatever uh, format it it might be in it, it's not only like a ser- serving as a discursive uh in its discursive form but also in the form of uh materially like the, that it'll actually involve uh, a certain level of helping out communities and like uh, bringing people together and uh, you know uh, educating people and uh, utilizing it i mean uh, especially given the context of uh, the the conversation being uh, you know like we're talking about south america uh, as far as this is concerned like uh, there's a there is a treasure trove of uh, leftist uh, socialist communist artists who have basically I, I would say, you know, like you have so much to learn from them as much as like uh, you can learn from the intellectuals that you pointed out in that they actually worked with the movements. So there isn't art that's actually directly tied to a movement uh, in the United States. And wouldn't that be something that you would think, you know, like like you said, like the, the connection between uh, art and movements is basically what we try to want to highlight. It's not the art itself by uh, alone. Yeah, yeah, that, that's Absolutely. like, like that's where it's like, yeah, don't and like, don't feel bad, and like we don't come at the project like that. It's that, and like in exactly like you said, art in in in, in many cases is just a reflection of you know society of reality, um, through through the artist and their imagination, you know, and all those things. Um, the whole point of this is to say, are there artists that are reflecting the feelings that we have? You know, or like the very budding, you know, or at least I don't want to say budding, but a, a more of like a, another beginning wave of of left movements within the United States, and hopefully connecting to a a, a the international movement. Because um, I don't know if that's something that we've even like we've kind of touched on with like kind of like the support within China and Russia and everything like that. Um, but I think that's that's actually something that like I think is like attainable. You know, I think that it's easy to kind of go into the the romanticism of like some grand revolution or or some shit like that. Uh, and I'm happy that you actually mentioned it's like it's not it's not good to do that. You know, <laughs> as a, as a veteran myself, it's you're not the main character. You know, you'll be lucky if you're like one of the people who gets listed in the credits. You know, like life doesn't actually work like that. Um, and and bad things happen in war zones, but something that I think is actually, you know, possible and something like the left in the United States can actually go hold of is a more sense of international solidarity 
and and trying to actually key into some of these movements that have been successful. And it might be a little bit of reverse engineering, but through the uh, winds, you know, in, in the democratic processes that are on the back of these revolutions, you know, having these connections across across the world, which I think it's 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 more and more possible the more political legitimacy that these left uh, left wing governments get. Um, but basically, yeah, to have any successful revolution, you're going to need some friends. Um, and, and so I think that might be a better goal and it's a little less sexy than, you know, Hey, we're starting this thing and let's go take over the government or something like that. But no, let's, let's, let's build some connections with Cuba to figure out how we can actually bring, you know, some, some type of healthcare to our communities that we can manage because if Cuba can manage it, then, then a, a community with very limited resources, they can manage it. Um, and like this, this can that type of thing, of course, education, agriculture can be multiplied throughout many and like multiple communities through Latin and South America. And that might be, I don't know, that's that's kind of like where I've my, my thinking is. Um, so I, I guess I, I wonder if, he, if, if, if you would agree that that that's kind of like the fertile ground where the left in the United States can actually really grow, and that's connecting with these with the successful revolutions that are really, really starting to take root right now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, first of all, art and music and all that, it's inherent in human society and culture everywhere. So every single movement, whether it's on the left or the right, it's always going to have its culture and its art. And that's important. And we should encourage that and cultivate that. And definitely it's an important part of any left-wing movement for transformation. So yeah, I, I, I'm glad you all agree that, you know, sometimes you just hear like these liberals who kind of fetishize the idea that you can just transform society through art. And it's funny, I mean, I've even seen some liberals sometimes, they will uh, quote Bertolt Brecht. They usually know nothing about Brecht, who said art is not, is art is a hammer with which to shape society. He said, it's not a mirror, um, but it's a shaped, it's not a mirror that reflects society, but a hammer with which to shape it. But that was, that's also funny because uh, Bertolt Brecht was a communist. And after World War II, he lived in East Germany. So uh, it, it's funny seeing liberals quote him, but it's also kind of sad seeing um, sometimes people quote him because, well, yeah, I guess you could say art is a hammer to shape society. But I mean, he was in Germany and it didn't it clearly didn't work in Germany. His art didn't work to stop fascism. So, I mean, I love Brecht. No, no disrespect to Brecht, but we have to have like a more sober kind of analysis of this. And but yeah, I agree you that can use a, a lobster hammer to shape marble, but <laughs> it's, it's not really be very effective. Yeah, but I mean, I I do though. I mean, I always appreciate revolutionary art. I also appreciate non-revolutionary and apolitical art. But um, it's true that every single successful political movement has always had a very strong emphasis on art and culture and movies and all of that. So in music, certainly music is always a huge part. You begin this episode playing some of the famous anthems in, you know, in Latin America. Every time I've been at a Chavista rally in Venezuela, every time I'm at a Sandinista rally, I just went to one last weekend here in Nicaragua. They always play the revolutionary music and the songs. And those are great. Like that's always a huge part of these rallies and social activities. But again, uh, the, the Sandinistas didn't defeat the 
Samosa dictatorship by playing music, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you all agree. And, and it's, it's interesting to talk about what role music can play in that and, and how it can be part of building this movement. And also, like, I mean, how to uh, subvert the liberal hegemony that you're talking about, like, uh, without subverting the liberal hegemony that, uh, like, Hollywood culture exerts, like, I feel like we're kind of at a loss here, because, like, they they also use that as an effective medium with which to co-opt revolutionary uh, uh, politics, even, like, not just revolutionary art, like, with the, with the onslaught of, like, the kind of, that's the reason why we started the show to even begin with, uh, the onslaught of all of the uh, fucking movies uh, that, that are appropriating the black panther imagery like oh god yeah and like and and they're and they're kind of neutering the politics of it by doing so and like i feel like in a kind of way uh, there's almost a responsibility that we started feeling that like we we have to you know have a home for this which is not uh, you know uh, subscribing to that kind of bullshit so uh, yeah you know like how do we subvert the liberal hegemony w- through which like we're kind of ke- keeping people in this extremely anesthetized uh, state of like uh, oh yeah you just have to have like Bruce Springsteen sing you uh, sing a song to unite everybody and like uh, that's gonna get everybody to the voting booth and uh, you know uh, then you're going to overthrow fascism yeah well that's that's the question i mean maybe you all have better thoughts than i do but i think one of the ways to do it is that this this art has and i say art you know generally as in the arts it has to be linked to a movement right it has to be part of a social movement and because you can't just defeat the liberal hegemony without political power without social power and I think there are certain artists who have a pretty mainstream platform who get that. I mean, I think the shining example of this is Boots Riley. Like, that guy, he totally yes. understands. He really gets it as, as a musician, as a filmmaker. And, you know, he's part of the social movements. And he sees his art and his music as not only something that's enjoyable and genuinely good, but also that's something that is part of this this culture of the social movements, right? And... Just as we have Hollywood is the culture of the empire and of the Democratic Party and the, the ruling class, we need to have a culture of the social movements. And every social movement has that. And sometimes, let's be real, the art's not very good, but every social movement has its songs and its movies and its artists. And I'll, I'll say this. If you've ever been on picket line with and without music, you know the difference. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to add just real quick. Um, I think I think what you guys are hitting at is kind of like a mechanism of propaganda to actually ex- explain to the the public what the actual position of the left is. Because currently we're living in a country where the the entire and complete narrative is a manufactured narrative by the capital interest or those who hold capital. And I think that creating a narrative through the mechanism of art and I'm not sure if you'd put memes in there, but, you know, by creating- absolutely <laughs> memes are an art. <laughs> giving- go, go finish your thought. Yeah. Yeah. You're giving people a narrative to actually begin to understand the world because humans are by nature creatures who understand narratives. And I think the point of art that you guys were making, which I would 100 percent agree with, is that like it is an important element to give people the information and tools to actually recognize and fully comprehend what's going on kind of in the world around them. And, uh, and Benjamin just wrote, like, it's been a while since I studied, uh, Nazi Germany, but if there's any, like, sources 
places that you know that you think would kind of be helpful for me to look at, I, I would love uh, any recommendations and pass this all, you know, step down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll come to the Nazi thing in a second. I just want to say before I forget on, on this subject of like music and propaganda, um, just briefly. So uh, in terms of propaganda, I think that's true, especially for film. Film is a very popular medium for what you could loosely call propaganda. Of course, propaganda has a negative connotation, but in informing people also because of the emotional impact of film, right? And I mean, the Soviets understood this very well. The Soviets were pioneers in film and you can go back and watch Eisenstein and all the early films and they understood, they invested very heavily in film, but I think other arts are a little different and it's, it's not all, not all media are the same. So Music doesn't have the same kind of impact, but I think music has an important social impact. And, you know, as you all just talked about, like go to a protest with music and go to a protest without music. Like even if the music is not necessarily political, like there's a social element that brings people together, singing the same songs and all of that. So even if the art is not necessarily for informing people and propagandistic, I mean, it also, I think, can play a very important social role because a big part of building social movements and building the left is also about building a, a unified community of people, right? I think we really need to think about it in, in that way. Like, uh, it's not just enough to, to get, like, a kind of uh, revolutionary music, but to have a community of people because, obviously, you can't have you can't have a political movement without a community. And, and as for um, your question about reading more on, on Nazi Germany and all of that, I mean, most of what I've read, there's so many books, obviously, about Nazi Germany. I would never claim to be an expert on this history. But a lot of this history I learned from reading Hobsbawm, who, you know, people criticize Eric Hobsbawm, one of the great European historians, for being kind of Eurocentric. And I agree that he is kind of Eurocentric. But he was a, a socialist a historian, he died recently, and he has this massive four-volume series on the modern history of Europe, and specifically his his last two volumes on the 20th century, like the the long 19th century and the short 20th century, uh, and then what he wrote after that. Like his analysis of the Nazis, at least from what I've read, is is without parallel. Like anyone who wants to understand fascism. Read his book on the short 20th century. It's incredible. I mean, and he, he calls it short 20th century because his argument of the long 19th century is from the French Revolution up to World War One, And then the short 20th century is from World War One and the Bolshevik Revolution until the overthrow of the Soviet Union. So he really explains that period better than anyone else I've read. Eric Hobsbawm. All right. Uh, can you... Uh as I think like we're, we're, we're close to two hours now and I know you said uh, you had another interview after this. So like b before we uh, close, uh, can you like talk a little bit about your own art and like uh, basically how you approach it, um, how you actually manage this kind of output, man? Like because like I would love to learn uh, if anything, because like uh, the the journalistic output itself, I would imagine is uh, is, is, is enviable. So uh, how do you on top of that manage to keep your band, band camp like so fully stacked? Well, I'm all, I wish I could publish more. I'm always trying to publish more. I mean, look, for me, music is therapeutic. It keeps me from going crazy or crazier. And if I didn't have it, like, I don't know what I would do. Like, 
So I, I write music, I play music, I record music in my spare time for free, when I have free time and it's for fun. And my, my lyrics are political because what else am I going to write about? Right. But, uh, a lot of them are screamed anyway. And it's most of it's, it's mostly metal. So I also do instrumental music sometimes. So I don't necessarily do the music because I expect it to like change society. I write, I write political lyrics because I'm a very political person and I, and it's a therapeutic way to deal with these issues in a way that's not the same as, you know, it's more emotional than it is intellectual. So I'm always trying to do music. I'm always trying to do more music, actually. I wish I could publish more. I'm actually working on a new album right now and I'm ho- I hope to have it out in the next few months. So that for me, it's not, yeah, that, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Can I uh, ask just kind of really quickly just about the process? You know, yeah. like, are you, I mean, like, I've met people who, like, they play guitar, you know, bass, lead, drums. They do, like, vocals, and they just lay it over. How do you, yeah, like, do you have people to help you out? Do you, are you just that instrumentally inclined where you kind of just play it all and lay it over? Or what's up? Well, yeah, it depends on the project. I've been in, and I've been bands, I've been in bands going back to, you know, since I was 13 years old, I was always in like punk hardcore bands and then metal bands when I was like in high school and college. And uh, I was also, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I was also a music nerd. I was always in jazz band and I love jazz. I still play jazz. I was throughout high school and college. I always was in jazz band um, and jazz ensembles and I still write jazz and I combine a lot of jazz and metal and, um, you know, I still love all that. And in terms of, I, I think you said you're probably going to play one of my tracks from uh, this project that I have. I've had now for about nine years, which is called Peculate, which is a solo metal project. And it's all, it's all me. I mean, I don't, I play some drums, but not well enough because the music's really crazy and complicated. So I just program the drums. I used, I've used different drum programs over the years. Now I've been using GDD, which is from Adam Nolly, Get Good from Periphery, which are just like amazing drum sample libraries. And I record all the guitars and I record the bass and I record all the keys. And then I uh, do all the vocals. I record the vocals and it's mostly screaming, but I do some singing, but I'm not a great singer. So I do some singing, but mostly screaming. And uh, until recently, I... The, the only thing that I had other people do is I would have them record like um, saxophone because I do a lot of jazz and I have a lot of sax in my music. But I actually recently, especially during the COVID, you know, the peak of the COVID pandemic when I had more free time and I was at home, I bought a sax and I started trying to teach myself basic sax. So my new album that I'm about to release has me playing sax. But uh, the one I just released. Which, which saxophone? Alto? I have an alto soprano. and a tenor. Oh, okay. All right. I love I soprano. Still- uh, I, I tried soprano, also... but its intonation is really hard on a soprano. I'm not good enough yet. Uh, I've never tried soprano. I, I used to play alto and baritone. My brother played tenor a little bit. Um, so I, I definitely, this is not an opportunity for you to say, hey, do you want to lay down something? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, used, I used to dabble. Yeah, you know, they could say that. Um, no, that's awesome. And like honestly too, it's like the reason why I asked is because there's there's just a lot of lot more work into like developing your soul track that, you know, like you're just kinda lay you know, <laughs> redoing over and over again. Um 
but uh, that's awesome. You know, it's very incredible. And and, and, and I and, and I also have to say, um, I I'm unfortunately not playing something from Peculate because I don't know. I I, I managed to find something else. That one of your jazz compositions, I think. It, oh, it, cool. it Basically, the title uh, jumped out because it's called. Uh, it came to me in a drone. Oh yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so so I kind of wanted to uh, understand, like, uh, especially in the in the context of like instrumental music, um, having like this is a politically charged t- title, right? At least like uh, a little bit because you are a political person, like you said. Like so, um, there's um, I think there's this jazz um, arranger uh, in Cuba or some something. Uh, I think uh, his name is Arturo Farrell. Um, he had this album with Cornell West that actually won a Grammy recently. So I always like wonder what the, especially uh, in the in the context of like Latin jazz and all that. Like, what's the uh, the 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 beauty of it, of course, is the community uh, that it inspires. That like you can actually join together and have a good time, dance, etc. Um, but like in terms of giving the political titles, I kind of wanted to get a peek at uh, what what you were going for. Yeah, well. So I, st- I still write a lot of music that's also instrumental. So um, people, I mean, if they, they can check out Peculate, it's on Spotify and Bandcamp and YouTube and all that stuff. And that's, that has lyrics, so it's obviously more clearly political. But I also write jazz, and it's not political. I mean, it's instrumental music, but, you know, when I give it a title, I often give it a political title just because that's just, like, something I thought of that it kind of, it kind of inspired me. And it, it came to me in a drone was just like a kind of obviously a plan and came to me in a dream. But um, I think it was also like, I forget when I wrote it, but I think it was still during the Obama administration. And it, there was a lot of stuff on like the drone warfare. And I thought it just like kind of fit the mood of the song. So um, in terms of my instrumental music, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like it's some, you know, revolutionary uh, form of, you know, sub- uh, subliminal political messaging. I just in my free time when I'm just especially trying to like relax and not stress myself out with the world ending, I, uh, you know, just play some music. And sometimes when I, when I just play, you know, piano or whatever, I come up with an idea and then I start writing out a track. And that's what happened with, with most of my jazz tracks. I'm just like sitting there at my piano playing or playing guitar. And I just come up with an idea and then I just start writing the track around it. And if it's instrumental, then there's no lyrics. So, you know, that's why it's kind of hard for music to be like super revolutionary. Like, look, I, I love avant-garde music. I'm super into like really weird atonal 20th century avant-garde music. And a lot of those composers were very political. They were communists and socialists. And I mentioned Bertolt Brecht, but there are many others. So, you know, uh, you can be revolutionary in your personal politics and how you are as an individual and how you, you know, how you use your music in society, but I'm not necessarily sure that I agree that like just music on its own, especially in instrumental music is inherently revolutionary. I just, again, it's not necessarily intellectual. I just like it. I think it's cool. I think it's fun and it, and it helps me not go crazy. All right. Uh, on, on that note, like I just wanted to have you share your uh, final thoughts on the topic uh, and like uh, plug anything that you uh, might have to, plug that that that's coming up that uh aside from the album that you have coming up which we're definitely going to watch out for uh but uh any other projects that you're working on any um if with multiple arista any written material that you're producing um feel free yeah well something very relevant to this 
a good friend and comrade who is a brilliant academic, one of the good academics named Gabriel Rockhill, just published a really interesting article. It was at, um, I think it's called the Intellectual Salon, which is affiliated with the LA Review of Books. And it's, it's tangentially related to this topic today. And he talked about, he showed how the CIA and U.S. national security state supported the Frankfurt School, which people don't know, this was kind of like a more cultural turn in Marxism. It dominates academia. These were like the anti-communist Marxists in academia who during, you know, uh, Theodore Adorno and these others and Mercusa, who during the genocidal U.S. imperialist wars on Korea and Vietnam, they were talking about why it's important to defend Wagner and saying nothing about, in the case of Adorno, he had zero interest in, in actually existing socialism. He was, he's the embodiment of so-called Western Marxism. And, and quite literally, he wrote a book about Wagner while the U.S. was committing genocide in Southeast Asia, and he didn't care because that's how you be a real Marxist, right? So, I mean, uh, anyway, the point is, surprise, surprise, these so-called Marxists who were anti-communists, they were supported by the CIA. Surprise, surprise. And it's about, it shows how the CIA and the U.S. government created this kind of soft left anti-communist cultural apparatus which is re related to what we were talking about. So I would invite people to check out that article that Gabriel Rockhill wrote. And this Saturday, I'll be doing an, a live interview with him to talk about that. So it's, it's related to people. It's related to this topic for people who are interested in culture and the left. And as for plugs, I mean, I'll just say, check out, people should check out multipolarista.com. I try to keep it updated pretty regularly, pretty much every day. And yeah, if people for some odd reason are into very weird dissonant experimental metal and hardcore and jazz and they like to combine them all together and you like to hear uh blast beats with jazz harmony with screamed vocals and saxophone you can check out an eight-string guitar you can check out <laughs> peculate and uh are you sure are you sure that type of thing isn't played out right now <laughs> <laughs> i know it's a little a little derivative i wish i could be more original yeah so right. people can check out peculate which is it's spelled like speculate without the s and people always ask me briefly i'll say why is it called peculate because i always say when poor people take something they steal when rich people take something they peculate so <laughs> when rich people steal it's called peculation and i also just picked it because no one else had used that word and and there every other band name was taken so check out peculate Word, word, word. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for coming. Like, honestly, I, I get say, uh, like this and a few others have had a very, very enjoyable conversation and learned a lot. Um, I thank you for all the work that you're doing. And I know that you don't put too much, uh, stake in it, but also thank you for the music that you make. Um, because if a revolutionary is doing it, then it's revolutionary, and and that's okay, <laughs> right? We'll 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 we use that one. Um, well, thank you. But I think what Friday we for for the listeners, for the audience, Friday um, we've got Awkward, a hip hop artist who's also uh, involved in the abolitionist movement here in the U.S. Uh, coming up on Friday. Um, so I'm excited about that. Karthik, do you got anything else before we wrap? No, I just want the audience to hear uh, what. Uh, basically came came to me in a, in a drone by Benjamin Norton. Uh, ben, ben uh, what's your band camp again? 
so my, I have a I have two band camps. One that's for my metal, which is peculate.bandcamp.com. And the other one, which is for jazz and some classical, is just bennorton.bandcamp.com. bennorton.bandcamp.com. That's where I found this. So here is, uh, it came to me in a drone. That's uh, today's show. I hope to see you Friday at 3 p.m. Thank you, Ben Norton, for coming on. This is, uh, it came to me in a drone. Thank you.